and welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, fellow coach extraordinaire, John Marcus. John, what is going on, my man? Got to give the people, got to give the people what they want. Man, we're going to have our own jingle <laughs> soon. Yeah. Own jingle. That's that's what you heard right there. That's our next business, the jingle business. But before we get into that, let's talk about our current business, which isn't so much a business, is more of a community spreading. Yes. It's a community spreading the wealth, spreading the knowledge that's up our game, the running scholar program, which not only has courses to help your coaching, your training, all that stuff, but more so, more importantly, you become one of 300 plus members who can interact, answer questions, sign on to our monthly Zoom meetings, of which we just had another one, which went fantastically. And you can just nerd out, have your problem solved, and up your coaching game. This is what it's all about. This is how we get better as coaches. You know, whenever I'm going to go on a rant and tangent on our on our pitch. Yeah, because, okay. Hey, I like it, man. You know what, John? You and I grew up at the pivotal point where we went from the doldrums of the 1990s American distance running where you could run, I don't know, 409 in the mile in high school and be one of the best in the country. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Jeez. Like you ran 409, you were a superstar. And then all of a sudden you had the Webs, the Ritzes, the Halls, like Don Sage, all these people come out. And then ever since then, it's been a steady progress and high school getting better, better, better to the absurd level we're at now. Why did that start? Was it some magic thing in training? No, it was the freaking internet where you had coaches get together like understand what other people were doing, troubleshoot, dice dad initially. Well, guess what? The internet is kind of a cesspool in terms of the places you could talk about running, right? The old places where maybe our generation back in the day, dice dad, early, let's run. We could nerd out with Canova on training stuff. Well, those places have been, you know, taken over by trolls. So <laughs> unfortunately, so what John and I... Yes. What John and I did was let's create the old magic, man. Let's get let's get get the gang back together, give people a space and let's keep it focused on training, coaching that thing we love. And that's what we're all about. That's how high school kids got better. That's how we got to the current moment right now where high school kids are just running sub four and, you know, eight minute three K's left and right. We get we get here because coaches communicate. We help one another. We up our game. We become better. And that's the thing, right? It's the cheap and easy audience. It's not for you. If you want free, go waste your time on free message boards. If you're committed and invested, this is the place for you. And that's the whole idea. It's just a little bit of commitment, a little bit of investment, monetary, less than a dollar a day. And you get a have access not only to exposure to a lot of different training concepts and ideas and methodologies and science and you name it, but also exposure to coaches you might have never, ever have met. People from the UK, people from Australia, Canada, uh, high school coaches, college coaches, professional coaches, master's coaches, people, triathlon, multidisciplinary coaches, people you would never intersect with. This is the value of it. And it just... Again, as the population increases, so will the value. And the great thing is we know who is residing in the city. Everyone has signed up. We have your name. And if you act like a troll, we, Steve and I, or we'd be the very nice big brother and sister and tell you, hey, time out in the corner, come back. And if you continue to act foolish, you're gone. And because that's the thing. It's not about who's right, who's wrong in absolutism. It's about exposure to concepts and ideas and saying, okay, it worked. Why did it work? Not, oh, it can't work like this. Well, that's how we get better is through exposure. And that's the beauty of the clubhouse and the beauty of what we've created with the scholar program. And it just gets better. It's like California in the gold rush. Get in early while it's cheap and easy and accessible. Don't wait. Do not wait five, 10 years from now. 
or months or weeks or minutes now. <laughs> That's right. With inflation, you don't know where the prices are going. That's true. So, um, I, you know, I want to address something real quick because I think this is important. Um, and it's something you touched on that. But why did we settle on a, a, essentially less than a dollar a day? Especially if you go the yearly, it's less than a dollar a day uh, for sure. Well, we did that because we wanted some barrier to entry. Because we need some sort of quality control check that says, hey, are you invested in coaching? And when you're invested, all sorts of research shows you're going to be a better participant in it. You're going to bring more thoughtful clarity and you're going to stick around for the long haul in terms of contributing, which is what John and I are about. We're trying to create create this, this community. So, and the other part is, of course, like it takes a ton of time and effort on John and I's part to put together everything in terms of the courses the zooms, the recording, editing on the back end, and we don't charge for this podcast, uh, which also takes hours and hours of of all that as well. So there is that component of it. But that's why we settled on a dollar a day. And we also periodically, although you don't always hear about them, but we run programs where we we've given away, you know, scholar uh, memberships for free for individuals who uh, came from low income uh, high schools who were starting programs or getting things, you know, new to it and wanting to uh, up their game. So we run things like that every once in a while. And the reason we can do that is because of supporters like you guys who are joined in on board. So I want to thank you guys. But John and I are about transparency. So I just want to be straight up. Like, that's why we do it. We're trying to create the best running coaching community that we can in the world. And that involves some money, but that also involves a barrier to make sure that we don't devolve to the unsaid message boards of the world. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought up that research, Steve. It's just like that little bit of friction cost goes a long way. And that's really what it's about, right? And, you know, it's just about what's a sustainable friction cost for our audience? Like, what is the the lowest but highest possible standard of entry that we could, you know, ask. And Steve, and I just basically said, what would we pay if we were on the other end of this uh, arrangement? Right. And said, Hey, dollar a day, no brainer done. Great. And you have just, again, like think about how much money you spend on books or, um, courses, uh, you know, conferences, you know, other things. Right. And they're very transient in terms of one and done. You consume it for that time period. And then, yeah, you might get a couple ideas here and there. But the nice thing is with the community, again, the cool thing is you can just troubleshoot in real time with this. Like that's the cool thing about the internet now and the clubhouse is if you have questions, if you want dialogue, there's a back and forth that's going on and you never know who's going to chirp up and chime in and help you out and maybe give you an opportunity to think in a way or direction that you weren't um, initially planning and that might not only level up your ability to coach, but also your ability to impact your learners, which is your athletes, and make them better athletes and better learners, that more independence, better results. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing to watch spawn. So please join us because, again, it's the strength of community is on the population of it. And so it's just one of those things, right? It's the, the more people we have, the better it gets. Absolutely. All right, so let us jump into today's episode. After the longest pitch ever. Ever, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we got to do that every once in a while. And I think it's, it's important to have those honest conversations with our, our, our audience, too, because sometimes I get questions on that stuff. And, you know, we're not selling you supplements, about. unfortunately. Like, if we really want to make a lot of money, we'd sell you supplements. Yeah. We'd be like, hey, I got this great supplement and this great supplement and this great supplement. so until we go there we have not sold out but once we do we'll be the first to say (laughs) yeah if you started hearing us pitch supplements that that we've created that's when you know john and i need some money and uh you know our wives have have gotten on us and said hey bring in some bring in some cash we're struggling yes yes we'll we'll go completely um 
uh, absolutism, we'll just press the buttons of cognitive biases, high emotional charged uh, topics, but the supplement pitch would be nonstop. <laughs> All right. So let's get into that. Speaking of supplements, I think this kind of ties in. Today's topic, dumbification immunization. How to not be a dumb coach and why it's important. Whew. All right, John. So I'm, I'm going to throw it over to you because you were like, I got this. I got the topic for this week's podcast. Here it is. This is what we're doing. Speaking of the internet, as we did, you go around nowadays and there's just a lot of dumb stuff out there. And it's, it's tough because, you know, you look around and it's, it's noise. But the thing is, is like I found a, an old little uh, track and field news pamphlet uh, book from like the 70s. And it's actually, there was an article in it, and it's like running half-truths. And I was like, that's it. That's what dumbfication is. It's just these half-truths where it's plausible and a little bit makes it say, yeah, I think this is kind of the right direction. But then people and uh, run with it and then manipulate it. And you go down this dumbfication path where it's like you make it easier and simpler and easy and simpler, and you strip away the nuance and strip away the actual complexity to make it this kind of straightforward thing so it's approachable for the rube, right? Because that's really how we all start off is like total greenhorn, rube, a rookie, someone with zero um, knowledge or skill set in a sphere. And then we advance a little bit, we get a little bit more sophomoric, right? We have a little bit of knowledge, but we're really arrogant about it. And we go as far as possible with it. We think we got all the answers because we have a little bit of knowledge. But a lot of us, you know, unfortunately tend to stop there and we don't do the hard work of the doldrum of being in the intermediate um, purgatory. That's a transitional stage, right? You're transitioning from this rudimentary elementary based knowledge to more sophisticated, advanced comprehension of complex things, but seeing how they all interact. And that's the hard part of going from dumb to smart. Dumb says, how many miles a week do I need to run? Like I saw, you know, something on the internet, you know, where it's like they asked a high school cross country runner who was pretty good. They go, how many miles a week do you run? And they're like, oh, I only run like 10 to 15. They're like, what? How? Huh? It's like, it's not about how many miles a week do you run. What are you doing with the in that 10 to 15 miles that you're doing? If that's all training at around race pace or goal pace or speed, that's pretty good quality of work, right? Maybe you, the coach was like, hey, they don't need to do this aerobic generation running because they are not strong enough yet. They're still developing for a myriad of reasons, potentially. So I'm cross-train, and that's okay because aerobic regeneration running can be aerobic walking, can be aerobic cycling, can be aerobic swimming, can be aerobic, you know, uh, rock climbing, right? As long as it's an aerobic-based activity, you're getting the regenerative component in there in your zone too. It doesn't need to be running-oriented for it to have the restorative impact, which is to delete fatigue, as Steve and I have talked about before. But long story short, if you have a very sim overly simplistic model of all that matters getting the miles in, and any mile is a good mile, and all miles are the same, it kind of dumbs down the sophistication of training. And so with that, we have to be on guard, I think, more than ever of what is noise and signals, because now what ha is happening is people are getting a lot more sophisticated, and they're creating this kind of like weird noisy signal, where it's like, it looks like it's smart, it looks like it's real, it's this truthiness, right? But in reality, it's another half-truth to kind of steer you into their corner of the world and create this echo chamber or confirmation bias. And then you just kind of like atrophy. You stop. You don't grow anymore. And that's the point of, you know, not being dumb is you've got to grow. And to grow, you need exposure to new and you need to consider the new and different or things beyond your current um, awareness. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the simple often gets in the way. I mean, we want to simplify things so that they're usable, but we can't strip away all the nuance that we lose the functionality of it. And it's also not, you know, the thing is, is it's not as simple as you, you might initially think of it. Like a college coach asked me, you know, like, hey, how do I get my middle distance guys 
to run sub 50. And I go, well, it's going to be probably plyometrics, stairs, this reactive strength, right? This idea of this elastic strength, this rebound strength, right? And, you know, probably going to get in um, the weight room a little bit more with a little bit more fuller range of motion squats and or deadlifts. And it just kind of looked at me because what the college coach was looking for was track workouts, right? I need, do I do sprints? Do I do this? Do I do that? And it's like, well, if you don't have the reactive elasticity, and we call this, you know, sometimes fast twitch, in the ability for your body to generate attention or generate force and then reabsorb it and spring off the ground, the spring concept, well, it's going to be really hard, no matter how many intervals you hammer away or grind out, to then be able to get the human body to create this spring effect to run sub 50 because muscle contraction we know is very slow happens at 170 miles per hour the reactive contraction the fascial contractions happen at 700 miles an hour speed of sound right because this whole web that talks to the human body that's why plyometrics work that's why depth jumps work so it's not the straightforward approach and it took me a long time to decode that and understand that and it's, you know, again, why Steve and I talk about why the bounding stage is so important in Lydiard's training, because you have this motor as aerobic strength that you built, but you have this very low elasticity that you put on the shelf. And so you need that transitional stage. But again, it was this, you know, re-education, not re-education, but just illumination for the coach. Like, oh, it's not just what I can time and put on the stopwatch or write down for splits and, you know, reps. It's something else that has an indirect but direct influence on the thing I want. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great point. And earlier you brought up the uh, the talk around, you know, oh, this runner ran 15, 20 miles a week. I think what you're referring to is the footlocker champ, Natalie Cook. And I think this is a great example because uh, I don't know them well, but her dad, Andrew Cook, ran in college uh, maybe a couple years before I did, but was a very strong runner. It was like a, I don't know, a 219 marathoner. We raced on the roads a little bit. Her mom was um, a phenomenal runner, All-American all at, at Texas A&M, I believe. Um, and I think the the brilliance here is okay, we see something like that and we say, oh my gosh, they're only running 20 miles a week. Like, what's the problem? What's Like, what are they doing? And, and I think we forget that, you know, a dumb coach would say, oh, can't run fast off 20 miles a week. That can't, like, we can't do that. A smart coach would sit there and be like, well, ask, why is she only doing 20 miles a week? Right? Why? You know, I trust her, her parents as a, Andrew's a coach, smart guy, good runner himself. Well, she's got like a history of injuries. She's not like maybe strong enough, as you said. I don't know the exact answers, but you supplement that with cross training and you've got obviously someone who can run fast enough to win, be the fastest high schooler in the nation this year, right? Win footlocker, et cetera, et cetera. So it's good enough. Like for her in this moment, why would we, why should, why should she do 60 miles a week if 20 miles a week is the logical step at this point, right? That allows her to like reach her goals while maybe setting herself up for future things. And I think, we're talking about dumbification of coaches and where we go wrong. And this happens to all of us because I've gone through this phase is we'll look at training and we'll be like, oh, that's so dumb. Right. I don't know why they, that person did this. Like, oh, what are they thinking? And if you have that tendency, if that is your first step, you need to step back. Because you need to think, hey, why is this person doing this? Hey, is there something that I'm not thinking about that might lead this coach to do this, right? 
And maybe it is like horrible training in some situations, but we are we pull the trigger way too much on oh, this is dumb training. And I'm gonna just get on my soapbox here, but if we if we looked back at at training in let's say the the 1940s for say before the Lydiard kind of revolution for Zatapak, etc., or during his career. We might look at a lot of their training and we'd be like, oh my gosh, that's dumb. But when we do that, we list we lose the vital messages in the nuance that you talked about, where there is something to learn from that. Granted, it was at a different evolutionary stage of training knowledge. But this person, these people in history, like ran pretty fast, did some crazy things. And there's some knowledge that we might have lost or neglected. I mean, I think we forget. I mean, going back to, I mean, I'll just, it's an example off the top of my head, but we look at someone like Gunder Hogg's training, who, you know, ran 401 ish for a mile, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah. And, I mean, that was. And was the, the, the first guy to go under 14 in the 5K. Um, again, on cinder tracks part-time training like if you look at his training during various parts of his you know career year he's probably averaging 15 to 20 miles a week you know and do we go back and be like ah gunder you and your coach like you you were you guys horrible training horrible training the dude ran 401 on cinders like in 1940-something. Like, maybe we're missing something off. I'm not saying we should go back and copy all this training. It evolved. But, and uh, obviously, super talented guy. But maybe there's something, there's something in there that allowed him to run 401 on cinders, no super shoes. Like, do the math on that. 401 cinders, no super shoes. That's probably like a, I don't know, a 353 right well, now. Well, and you have to understand the spikes they did. I have bought spikes yeah. from that era. Like, I have them in my size. You put them on and you're like, I'm a minimalist, like barefoot, like, you know, less is better because there's a lot of feedback that comes through the feet. But I put those, it's the whole thing's leather, like leather, leather. <laughs> And the spikes are about as long as your pinky. Like <laughs> these things are not comfortable to run in at all. <laughs> it, it, exactly. So as I said, I don't know what the conversion is, but it's it's something like a low three fifty mile without competition, without rabbits. Blah 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 blah. For sure. Like the dude dude ran like if someone ran that today on fifteen twenty miles a week, we'd be like <laughs> drugs, yeah. drugs. But you know, sorry to go there, but like. It's the forties. Okay. And, and, and this is my point is like, we think in either ors and absolutes when we kind of get concrete is like, you have to do this. You have to do that. No, you need to free your, your mind up to see what the possibilities are because you never know when you're going to have to encounter that. And I think, you know, um, history going back, respecting the history of runners and understanding what they do is one of the best ways you can immune, you know, immunize yourself against this dumbification of coaching. Because if you have respect and understanding and knowledge of what these people did in the past and appreciation for it, then it allows you to kind of step back and be like, oh, wait a minute. You know, we had people running low four minute miles off nothing or as um the the brilliant uh, doctor and scientist Michael Joyner always likes to tell me is go look at Bob Schul's last 300 meters in his Olympic you know victory it's it's like 36 37 seconds for 300 meters oh, wet, something crazy <laughs> crazy like wet that cinders. and he always points out he's like look at the comparable like tactical races of you know, Mo Farah in his prime or whatever have you is like, is like Bob Schul is closing. They're running the same overall time. Bob Schul is closing just as fast as these guys, if not faster on cinders. Mm -hmm. Like 
maybe there's something we're missing here from Bob Schul's training or his development that, you know, this isn't just dumb training from the 50s where they are dumb training by running intervals every every single day. Maybe there's something we're missing there that allowed him to have that speed and that capacity to change that gear like no other that we aren't tapping into today. All right, I'm, I'm coming off my soapbox. Good soapbox. I mean, I think, you know, again, dumbfication means, or being dumb, as we call it, is, again, we're not here trying to ostracize or, you know, we're having a little fun with the, the term, but we're not trying to ostracize or criticize people. Uh, it's just... The idea, the concept of dumb is it's one dimensional, right? It's very, very rudimentary, very, very elementary. You might gravitate and get one thing right, you know, like, oh, the physiology and like, we're just going to focus on that. And that's how I interpret and think of training, right? And you might be very right in that. But being a coach is difficult because it's actually multidimensional. Like I've tried to make it three dimensional in the way I think about it, where it's like, you have three elements that are always at interplay with wonder. And it's hard when we think about three dimensions. Like if we think about the body, right? We have the transverse plane, sagittal plane, you know, frontal plane. It's like, but we just made those arbitrary landmarks on the map because the body operates in 3D all the time. <laughs> so we have this concept of the body in these planes and how it is in motion and locomotion, but it's not actually really an accurate representation of reality. It's just our brains are so feeble that we have to make these rudimentary or arbitrary divisions to help us process what's going on. And so as a coach, you know, the three dimensions we're always working in are the physical, are the organizational, and the interpersonal, right? And so that's how really I look through it, right? Physical does everything from a physical standpoint. What are we doing from a physical education as the physical teacher to the physical learner, which is the athlete. The organization is then organizing all those elements that have to do not only with training, but also you know putting on meets, transportation, logistics, this and that, periodization, you name it. And then interpersonal is people, culture, unit, you know, I mean, all those types of things. And they're all blended at the same time, right? And that's what makes it so hard. And some coaches are really, really strong in one area there might be you know this coach is really good in the interpersonal department like that's what you could say about like rob connor at up or you know mike smith or even vin lanana is like they're really strong in the interpersonal department right mike is also very strong in the physical department he has a very deep understanding of physiology trained with you know uh, study under jack daniels understand these things really really high like both you know rob and vin have an awareness of physiology, but, you know, say, hey, look, I'm never going to lose to strict physiologists because they understand it's not just physiology that is impacting running performance for, uh, you know, young adolescent or, you know, young adult uh, runners that they work with at the collegiate level, right? And then they also have maybe not the strongest organizational skills, but they've offloaded that to someone else on their team, like, you know, Vin Lanana and Mike Riley for years. Mike Riley was the organizational hub to all of Vin's um, workings. You know, Rob Connor has Ian Soloff at UP. It's, they understood how it's all connected. And so when they understand all these things, they're able to create really successful programs that can help elevate a lot of different individuals to higher levels than when they first showed up uh, as, you know, high school seniors or high school or college freshmen. But that three-dimensional understanding takes a lot of time to go, aha, and then see those things and then be able to see how they, the, how all the ingredients intersect to bake the cake, so to speak rather than be so focused on, you got to have the best sugar. And that's what really matters in a cake is sugar, sugar, sugar. But there's flour, there's butter, there's eggs, there's other things. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that I love that conceptualization because to me, like, a smart coach knows what they're good at and where they need help at, right? Where do you, Where do you fill those gaps at? And, 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 and that's like, yes, you're trying to get it better in everything, but 
I think it's like that awareness that prevents you from getting siloed or going down one path. Like in my own coaching, whenever I'm working with athletes, I'm very much aware that, you know, I love science. I love the physiology. I have this bias towards it, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And for all of my career, I've been very aware that like, oh, this is my primary bias. Like I have to work against this. I have to like make sure to try and dive deep on the psychology and the interaction and the, the whatever have you on your different components, the organization, communication, all those things. Because my bias is like, oh, physiology, writing, training, that stuff is great. Let's do this. So like I could do that all, all day with with nothing, you know. Um, so you've just got to be aware so that you don't fall into the so narrow, so specialized that you can't zoom out and see these other buckets that you have to fill and that matter in coaching, right? It, because coaching is like a, such a, it's a human, humanistic thing. Like you have to juggle all these various components and in order to do so you can't get locked in on any one thing and whenever we get locked in on one thing thinking like this is the key this is it we generally you know lose the lose you know lose the signal from the noise and also too it's a value to be an active practitioner in your craft even if you're not competing right i mean that's what i esteem with sarity bowerman even Lydia is like, they put themselves through the ringer and then they said, okay, does this work? Because if it works, it should have this direction of impact on me, this kind of like lesser, more feeble organism in the declining twilight years of my life. And so it then should have a more higher or magnitude of impact in people who are in the, you know, upswing of their life, young, younger, younger people, younger, you know, males and women. I still do that to this day, right? If I get some weird, quirky idea about technique, about training, um, organization or patterns, about dose and response, I do it to myself first to see like, is do I get the feeling or the response that I thought? Because before I put something novel on an athlete, I need to make sure like, hey, this works, right? The Mechanics of Athletics is a great book by Jeffrey Dyson, really under, under, uh, utilized, um, recommended to me by Dan Path. And with that, we tend to, in distance running, think in those me- concrete mathematical terms of interpreting only physiology. But physics is really important, really important. So we look at Gunnar Hogg, like, how can he run so fast off so little? And I always go back to nature, because nature, she is the smartest thing on the planet always have been, always will be. Like nature always wins, right? We are natural organisms. We were designed through all this kind of evolutionary training, so to speak, right? Uh, dose and response and adaptation. And to this day, it's like, okay, well, we are bipedal and we have, you know, this propensity to be endurance inclined and also, you know, run. So with that, that, lo- that form of locomotion, what did mother nature do to set us up for success and how do we understand the rules of physics to further um, incline mother nature uh, the apparatus she gave us to be successful so think about your arm your shank your forearm right from your ulnar radius where is it when you're running or when lesser athletes are running what you'll notice is lesser athletes or athletes who are slower they tend to run with the shank further away from the body this makes perfect sense why it's more costly. It's just levers, right? In physics, like if you just have something further from the center of mass, it changes the center of mass. It makes it a little bit more um, costly to keep it there. So why not tuck it in closer to the body and then also bend it so it becomes a shorter lever? And then when you start looking at East African athletes, what you'll notice is when they're in the flexion point of their stride, when the humerus is flexed forward, is that that shank of the ulnar radius and hand 
are real one, one really close to the body, two also very close to the humerus, right? Because why? This is just physics. It's we're here. This is a shorter lever, less costly, more economical, and it has what's most important, a lower mass of inertia. And that's what we're playing with in running is this mass of inertia. We need to re-change directions of limbs to propel the uh, implement that is our head and spine, our body forward. Every other, phys I mean, track and field is just physics, right? Shot put, javelin, discus, the implement's the implement. But in pole vault, hurling, high jump, and running and sprinting, the implement is our body, is our head, <laughs> essentially. Our head can't move. It has no way to do it, right? We can turn it back and forth, but in order to move our head somewhere, we have to move our body mass. That's why we have the appendicular skeleton. But when you think about it, it's like, oh, this makes a lot of sense from physics. It's just more Mother Nature designed us to be more economical because remember Neanderthals existed at the same time humanoids started to come into play. But Neanderthals had a daily caloric need of 3,000 to 5,000 calories and were more muscular and stronger. Whereas, you know, Homo sapiens only had a 2,000 to 3,000 caloric need, were a little bit more slight in build, but had a lot more endurance. And guess what? Because of their higher caloric need and the difficulty to get those calories, Neanderthals went out of business. We stayed in business. <laughs> efficiency, man. It, it, and Mother Nature, she prime. I mean, she esteems efficiency. I mean, you look left and right. I mean, she is an efficient, you know, uh, uh, you know, ruler. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No. It's 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 uh, it's interesting, and it's it's fascinating how the efficiency plays a role. Because like super shoes is just about efficiency, and now people are now. They put on the shoe and everyone's more efficient, lower running economy, right? Or better running economy, lower oxygen, you know, cost. Boom. Everyone faster. Yay. <laughs> it is a great, it is a great example of, um, you know, the benefits. And also, I think, uh, not to go down this, this tangent, but it also shows that like the super shoes almost like level the playing field a little bit for those who are horribly inefficient. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, um, this is, I talked to Jerry Schumacher about the, you know, uh, the other week and he was just like, yeah, he, he thinks this too. If you're less efficient from a mechanic standpoint, you get a bigger return from the super shoe than if you are more efficient from a mechanic standpoint. And so the, the margin becomes a lot more razor thin. Yeah. It, 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 exactly and that's that's i'm i'm with you 100 percent. i haven't i don't know if there's data on that yet but i think it it seems to be that 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 path yeah and i mean I woody that, kincaid's a good example not really efficient gets a big old bump from the super shoes becomes a sub 13 guy all of a sudden an olympian i mean he has a strong kick he's a really good competitor but you look from a mechanical standpoint of how he moves not the most efficient by any means whatsoever but now he's in the same ballpark as athletes who significantly outclassed him in college. I mean, and and but he's in the, now he's in the same zip code when he wasn't. He was kind of in the same state. Yep. Yep. No. It, it 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 if it's a weakness, it allows you to shore that up without uh, shifting anything biomechanically, mm -hmm. which is interesting mm -hmm. and fascinating. It is. It's it's yeah. a really. I mean. It's going to be a cool study. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so back, back on topic here. Um, how not to be a, a dumb coach. Okay. So we've, we've covered a little bit on, well, history plays a factor, not going against your bias or like recognizing your bias, that self-awareness is important. And the other thing that I would say is, that is really important is diversify your sources. Yes. Mm, thank you for saying that. Because I think here what often happens is we, because we're human beings, you know, going back to, you know, the thousands of years on the savannah, we like to put ourselves in one group and then call everyone else the others, right? And what happens even in the coaching training world is we often plant our flag 
and we say, hey, I am the high mileage coach. Hey, I am the high intensity coach. Hey, I am the Lydiard guy. I'm the Daniels. I'm the Canova. I'm the whatever, you know, whoever it is. Like, I'm in this camp. And when we plant that flag, then we often interact and then surround with, in terms of coaching talk, other people who validate that. Why? Well, it's like anything. It makes us feel pretty good to be validated. We, it's one of the reasons that belonging is such a huge psychological human need, because when we feel like we belong, then we feel like our beliefs are, you know, what we're saying, all that stuff are, are valid and more likely to be true. It's the same in coaching. We surround ourselves with people who think like us. Or maybe not surround ourselves. We have conversations on coaching for people who think like us. <laughs> so one of the things that you have to do, and that's what I think John and I really strive for, we strive for on this podcast, is presenting different viewpoints. Um, you just heard John go on on about the biomechanics and I don't jump in and be like, whoa, 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 John, why are you talking about this instead of the mileage, blah, blah, blah. And when I, like, the reason I don't is because we need to digest. We need to hear, like, viewpoints all over the place. You need to listen to your sprint coach. You don't have to agree with everything, but you need to listen to see, okay, what lens are they seeing through? Same with the strength coach you work or with. Or the throws or the coach, distance, man. I mean, or throws yeah. coach or whoever. Come on. The, the distance coach who like does more intervals than not. Blah, blah, blah. It's easy to dismiss. I get it. But if you can have these conversations, if you can listen and discuss, then you're going to pull out some nuggets when you get that athlete who doesn't respond in the way that you normally, you know, think they do. And that has happened to all of us. And we can either beat our head against the wall and be like, this is my program. Like, I don't know why you're not getting better. Joe and Susie are getting better over there. Right. Or you can say, Hmm. Okay. Let's try something different. And I, you know, in, in college, uh, when I was coaching college at Houston, I was saved so many times by, you know, conversations with either John or other coaching friends who have done something different. And I'd get an athlete off the top of my head. I remember one athlete who was so injury prone. Biomechanics were just like very toe driven, meaning like throwing that toe into the ground, prancing along, so injury prone, all this stuff. We worked on it eventually. But at, at first it was like, you know, any sort of running mileage, she'd get hurt. So we ran three days a week that first, you know, year or so. Three days a week. You want to talk about 10 to 15 miles a week? Like, there you have it. And she ran under 17 for 5K, I believe, that year, which was a big step for her. Um, and the only way you get there at is by saying, okay. We're going to run three days a week. We're not going to get this aerobic benefit. Where are we going to get it? Okay, what are the most important things we get three days a week? Well, I'm going to put down my like traditional model. I see the lens, you know, the world through and just say, okay, three days a week. How can I solve this? Well, I'll talk to people who, you know, high school coaches who work with kids who don't do a lot of running. I'll go back in history and see, you know, what were the Gunder Hags of the day doing when or the Roger Bannisters of the day doing when they were still running pretty dang fast and not training that much? What were they emphasizing? You got to be able to step outside of your comfort zone or else you just get locked and stuck. And these athletes who need something different, they don't get it. So don't plant your flag. Diversify your conversations. And I think, too, it's even going beyond the scope of, you know, athletics. It's I mean, Alan Bishop, you know, our colleague at University of Houston, who is the sports performance director for the men's basketball team. You know, it's like Bishop's been a really good ally and friend and person or it's like he's in a basketball world solving basketball problems, right, of strength and conditioning. 
but I've taken a lot from him in terms of direction of strength and conditioning books to read or topics to, you know, uh, investigate and also see if there's any kind of interdisciplinary um, translation from what he's advocating with. And if you follow him on Twitter, like a lot of deep squats, you know, other types of things for year round for his basketball athletes. Right. And what is that? So why does he want a deep squat? And it's like figuring out, okay, you know, as he says, bigger squat equals bigger bounce. And that's, he's trying to simplify or make it approachable initially the justification for this and this range of motion of the hips and knees and, you know, uh, hamstring that you get from a deep squat and the value that can bring to a, an athlete who needs to increase their vertical, right? So essentially there's a vertical component to running. So we want to understand a little bit why that's important and how to help increase that vertical component to running. And when you listen to me go on about like biomechanics or technique or form, it's not to throw all the physiological stuff out of the window. Like we still need to do that work. And we know very, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, from a mitochondrial development standpoint, more is better, right? More work, more mitochondrial biogenesis, more fuel cells, boom, boom, boom. And we know like, you know, endurance athletes have a little bit of immunity from different types of degenerative diseases and even drink a little bit more alcohol and can get away with it. Why? Because those there's more mitochondria. They just eat up all the all the waste, right? So it's important to understand these things matter, like how sprinters could benefit from more type of endurance work. It doesn't need to be jogging. It could be on the bike. It could be swimming. It could be like Allison Felix did, walking a lot, big, long walks, right? Which was a staple of a lot of distance runners training in the 20s and 30s was, you know, two, three-hour walks because there is an aerobic benefit to it. And we got to remember aerobic, the idea of it is fatigue, a fatigue deletion, regenerative. It's just like a massage. Our body responds to well to that low grade influx of blood flowing, the heart pumping a little bit, but not much more than it's like homeostatic normal because it doesn't generate any fatigue, but a lot of sprint coaches, right? No jogging whatsoever because you jog, you'll be slow. And it's like, well, if that is what you deem as training, correct. But if that's what you deem as a recovery modality or a regenerative modality to complement the hard, difficult power training, speed training, strength training you did before that, well, that's not really the Correct, because if you do the power work before or the strength before, and then you complement it with this aerobic work afterwards, they'll actually absorb and bounce back and recover a little quicker and more deeply than if you just did the strength training without any kind of cardio or aerobic work after. Dan John's a good example. He swears by, you know, our our weight, our weight training friend of this podcast, doing your strength work lifting heavy, lifting, you know, big, and then going for a 20 minute walk afterwards as the cool down. And he goes, it just, the pounds melt off, <laughs> you know, you feel better, you get stronger. It's great. And that's under, again, it's understanding that nuance and the dimensionality that is really important to, again, not be dumb and being dumb is, you know, I think the best way to think of it is one dimensional or, you know, unidimensional. Yeah, um, I love that. And I love that you brought up the example of uh, Allison Felix walks because that was the training in the 20s and 30s, even then into the 40s in the Gunder Hogg era. Um, it was, you know, started off with long walks. Actually, the origin of the long run likely came from often athletes in those areas did like long, long hikes on the weekend, right? And that eventually Lydia turned into the long run. So it's, you know, and we could sit here and be like, oh, you know, oh, this is dumb. Like long walks. We've evolved, blah, blah, blah. Again, guys ran pretty fast yeah. with long walks. Well, I mean, it's what's the goal, right? The goal is to yeah. regenerate. And we know that if you elevate the heart, then the blood flow increases. And then nutrient recycling happens. So nutrient, you know, um, 
disposal and then nutrient delivery. And if you get that nutrient timing where you've, I mean, this is why we talk about eating a meal with a good meal, a high quality, high impact meal immediately after you exercise is a high import in a discrete window of like, you know, 30 minutes to two hours because you you're flushing out the metabolic waste products you don't want your blood flow, your heart rate's increased. And so now you have this ability to deliver nutrients really quickly to help the rebuilding process. It just, it makes sense. It's like, you know, Alan Webb, like swore by in 2007, his um, three days a week morning swim with this, this master's club, you know, on his non-workout days as a key element to help him get better and be able to absorb all the training he was doing. And that absorption comes through restoration and repair, rebuild. And it, you just got to do aerobic stuff to do it. It's not, it's not complicated, but we make it this demonization, this either or. And this is the thing. It's, it's about relationships. How does it relate? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's like this. I, I'd call it smart coaching is understanding the nuance and the relationships between things. And once you understand the relationships, you're able to target, like you're able to step back and be like, okay, recovery, like we're after recovery and restoration. Great. The way we can do it is go for a run, which might work great for most people. Fantastic. But what if we have an athlete who has, you know, X, Y, and Z or injury concerns or biomechanics aren't there yet or strength isn't there yet? Well, we can do all these other things, walk, hike, you know, whatever. If you're in the snow, snowshoes, ski, whatever have you. Um, <laughs> doesn't matter. It's like this thing. And, you know, there was actually a paper that came out, a research paper that came out the other day. And uh, Ambie Burfoot wrote about it. And I was struck by this one line because they tracked all these uh, elite East African runners in, in Kenya, I believe it was. And uh, just tracked their training for a while. And it came out, they averaged like, you know, 107 miles a week, blah, blah, blah. And then their average pace for the their easy running, uh, Burfoot reported, was something like 740 mile pace. Yeah, I believe it. It's good. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you sit here and you're like, you're like, oh, we're talking walks. And I'm like, well, you know. Here you go. This guy who probably ran like, you know, 1245 for five for 5K, which is like, a you know, you know, for a little over whatever, 405, 406 pace, something like that. And I was like, well, he's running eight minute pace on his easy runs. And that's the hardest part about easy runs. Sometimes people comprehend it's like it's not training directly. It's indirect because it allows you then to bounce back quicker to do the more direct training. It's a rebuilding mechanism rather than a breakdown mechanism and that's the hard part with polarization that people think it's like oh if i just do more easy aerobic zone to work i'll get a lot better it's like how much rebuilding do you need for the breakdown that preceded it that's the question and if an easy run breaks you down because mechanically you're not strong enough to endure from a mechanic standpoint 90 minutes of jogging around at 740, 840, whatever pace. What is the point of the easy run? It's you're now, it's another stressful, it's another breakdown event. So now you've breakdown, breakdown in two in a row, right? So just go for a 90 minute walk or go for a 90 minute bike ride or go for a 90 minute hike or go for a 90 minute swim. The, the heart, the cardiovascular does not know any difference or just bench press for a really lightweight for 90 minutes, like without interruption continuously. The heart has no comprehension of any of the difference in those modalities. Yeah, it, 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 it's it's very interesting. It it really is. So I think as a again, tying it back to our, our topic here, a smart coach sees the adaptation and the stimulus that they're trying to apply and then doesn't get stuck in the, the well, this is this is how I've always done it. You solve the problem. And sometimes the problem, and most of the time, honestly, the problem is going to go the traditional route. You're going to be like, you know what? We need this. This is how we do it, 
right? We need this 90 minute run. We're going to go do it. We need this tempo or threshold run. Great. We're going to go do it. But the smart coach says it's not about, you know, the 20 minute threshold. It's about the adaptation we try and get after it. So if I've got this middle distance runner, I'm not sending him out on a 20 minute threshold. I'm just going to sit here and watch him do, you know, 800 meter repeats with a 45 second rest at like something ridiculously slow, like two forty eight hundreds or something. Right. Because smart coach says, you know what, this is going to get the adaptation, but he's going to be able to do it versus this 20 minute threshold, which mentally, psychologically at this point, he might not be able to do. Right. So it's understanding that nuance so that you can apply the right stimulus and take, you know, that thing off. Or, you know, it's like you said with Alan Webb, loved his swims. Natasha Rogers was similar. She loved swimming for recovery. So guess what? We're going to do this because like you get benefit of it. You think it helps. Serves the same role as if I went out and did a, you know, six, seven, eight mile shakeout. Go for it. Right. And that's the, it's also, I think being a not dumb coach and why it's important is you're trying to ascertain or acquire as much relevant information and input as possible to give you the most complete picture. Yes, you could live off just meat and potatoes alone, but you know, a complete meal, right? When we think about it, there's appetizers, there's salads, there's sides, there's, you know, libations, there's dessert. We we think about that full spectrum that's available to us. But oftentimes we focus on the meat and potatoes. And yeah, you want the meat and potatoes to be correct and understand what that is for your sport discipline. But it's just like how people will make these, um, you know, half-truth leaps about and judgments is that's what you have to be on guard about. My favorite is always the high school coach who criticizes college coaches because the athlete didn't get faster or better immediately in high college versus high school when they, quote unquote, saw that athlete progress rapidly or by leaps and bounds linearly every year. Well, what's going on in college? A lot, a lot of different things are happening in the collegiate landscape, emotionally, physically, relationally. It's a new calibration, right? And that college coach is not out to slow the athlete down. You know, it's not because of quote unquote bad coaching as you might want to like chalk it up to. The whole environment shifted to be brand new. And it's was that environment for that athlete you know, something that were easy, easily assimilated or had a difficult assimilation. And that difficult assimilation means you're going to have a longer adaptive time horizon. So as a, you know, smart coach or a non-dumb coach, you're looking for all that relevant information. One interesting thing we have too, to help color the training of those mid, um, you know, 1950s, 40s, 60s, 70s athletes now is we can actually go back and look on YouTube at Olympic footage in high def quality and sometimes color and look at the mechanics of how they actually ran. One interesting thing to note about Emil Zatopek is in 1948 versus 1952, the difference between him getting beat and him dominating was you look at how he ran, his mechanics were a lot sounder. They were a lot less sloppy. The shank when the foot hit was a lot more underneath his center of mass. His arms were a little bit more tucked in and closer to his body. Even though he still had the head rolling and all that kind of stuff, he actually looked a lot better in 1952 versus the 1948 Olympics. And Ron Clark, you look at how Ron Clark ran, really amazing technique, lower legs, upper body carriage was a little bit, you know, off. But it's like you start to appreciate like, wow, Actually, one of the big reasons why these esteemed historical runners were so good was because the biomechanics that they had allowed them to do what we consider this crazy training because they were blessed or figured out intuitively how to position their body. It was It's phenomenal when you step back and look at now that we have that element to help color their training. I None of the, you know, big time Olympic champions in the middle distance, distance events in the like 40s, 50s and 60s that I've seen 
had bad mechanics or had, you know, um, sloppy mechanics. It was all very, very, they're all very mechanically sound relative to their competitors and was one of the reasons why they're in that position to win. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's interesting there is I often think about, and this is a little tangent, but I think it's it's a nice way to end the podcast because it's interesting. I think that running in the spikes that they were running in and the shoes that they were running in. Which were basically nothings. Tr- <laughs> yes, you- on the track that they had to run in, you had to have, like, you had to, like, it's a little selection. Yeah. Like you had to figure it out because if you've ever, so here's, here's my only experience. Okay. My junior high had a cinder track. Okay. Mm. And it was the worst thing in the world. (laughs) But back then, like, you know, you practiced on the cinder track, you hope to God you didn't fall. There was like this concrete inner barrier, which you'd try and like, especially because we never wore spikes which except for, you know, competition, whatever you, you try and run on the concrete inner barrier because it was so much faster than the damn cinders. And I'll, I'll never forget. I remember, um, uh, you know, back I was in high school. I think one of my good friends training partner is like, Hey, I'm going to go work out on the cinder track. This sounds pretty cool. Cause I, the junior high was, you know, like three miles from our house and like, Okay, he went to a different junior high, never run on a cinder track before. And he was like, this sounds great. I'm going to go do it. I'm like, all right, have fun. Like really fit kid was like a 920 type high schooler back in the day. So was in good shape, et cetera. Goes to the track, runs like 1-800 in like 230. And it's just like, F this, this sucks. Like what in God's name? And I always think about that because I think in order to, so you had to solve this mechanical problem, even with the spikes of how in the world do I run efficiently and effectively without, you know, losing energy every single step running on these stupid cinders. Yes. I mean, cause you got little potholes, you're slipping and sliding. Like it is not a kind surface. No, it's not. It sucks. <laughs> but I think it it like forces you to figure it out. Yeah. Right? Mechanically, because like uh, no offense, but if you hit the ground wrong, you'll know. You'll it know. It hurt. Like owie hurt. Yes. It hurts. Yeah. And you just like potentially slide and go down. Like if you if you jam your heel like straight into the ground first. Like you're risking instability. Severe. Yeah. I mean, the biofeedback is so high. Yeah. So I just think that, you know, I I don't know. I think there must have been like some mechanical forcing mechanism. Even if you look at, I remember with uh, coach Tom Telez, like back in the day, he'd tell me, look at Zatapak and put your hand over his like upper body. You know, put like, just put your hand over his upper body. Just look at hips down and be like hips down. He looks pretty dang good. Yes, he does. You know, I was like, ignore the stuff up top. You know, he's arm carriage and his, his head moving and all this stuff. But like, look at the hips down and the legs hitting the ground. And I often think like, wow, that's crazy. But I, I think, you know, in order to run on the surface, it kind of forced your hand where you better figure it out because again, it's like the opposite. It's like the opposite of the super shoe, Mm -hmm. right? The super shoe allows you to get away with whatever, because it's like, Hey, we'll take care of this. Like however you hit the ground, we will give you a return. Yes. (laughs) We're going to give you the return. We're going to force it. So it, it happens. The sender, it was like, take dude, we we will if you mess up if you roll the wrong way if you it the hit the ground the wrong way we will suck it all from you yeah we're taking all that energy man <laughs> it's dissipating you are not getting that return so, very unforgiving like, yes. it, it, it's it's just something that i think is almost like a forcing mechanism where it's like well these guys had to figure it out because 
it sucks. I think that's a great observation. <laughs> I think it's a hundred percent true because I did the same thing. There's a old old junior high kind of outside of uh, Portland where they saw the cinder track, and unless that thing is like well groomed and well kept, I mean, you know, if you're running in the dry season on it too, it has like these perma divots. So every step is like your ankle mobility is, you know, going left and right. And it's like, it's super, super non-forgiving. So yeah, if you don't figure out a way to manage that environment successfully, you are going to be as successful in, in the sport and you're not going to, you know, be able to even sustain training. And we take that for granted now because we have a lot more forgiving services. Even the advent of EVA footwear is a forgiving uh, instrument that allows you to, that allowed people to get away with, you know, less efficient biomechanics. Cause when you go barefoot or very, very minimalist, that feedback from the foot and on up is immediate and pronounced. But as you start to dampen it with more and more cushioning around it, it becomes less pronounced. All right. Maybe this, I think this will, we'll let our listeners stew on this insight. I think, and you know what, one of the days, maybe when I visit my parents, I'm just going to go drive over to that cinder track and I'll, I'll, I'll film it. And I'm just going to, you know, run and remember how sucky it is. Here's what Um, we should do. We should like, I should come down there and, you know, we should just do like a, a double where it's like, all right, we do the classic mile 12, eight, four breakdown one day. And then wait a day or two, get rest up for our old age, and then go do it, you know, on the cinder and see what the differentiation is on the same level of perceived effort. Yeah. <laughs> I I think that that is it. Because I'm telling you, it's been a while, but junior high Steve ran so much slower <laughs> on this ridiculous cinder track than when we'd go over to the high school and compete and maybe maybe that cinder track training and development and strengthening is what sets you up to be pretty good high school steve maybe that had an influence all I'm telling you, man, is is out of that that junior high group of ours we had same same junior high and that same year we had myself a 413 guy eventually and a 420 guy all in the same year come from that god awful track. So, some be said, maybe. right? The environment shapes you. I mean, yeah. we know that we we got the science, we got the research on this. Like, the environment shape us. All right, uh, Strock Intermediate School. There's your <laughs> shout out. Way to go, developing it because of your refusal to upgrade any sort of facility. <laughs> amazing stuff all right well thank you listeners for sticking around chew on that a little bit as we're not gonna you know join the running scholar program you heard our our 10 minute pitch earlier so i'm not gonna belabor the point but get in the community we want you here if you're not in why aren't you in let us know why you're not in because we want we're inclusive we want as many people as possible so if you haven't signed up let us know why because actually it will help us Make it more useful, attractive, and valuable. Exactly. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.